let's, let's get going this morning. Um, we all want to know the future, don't we? We all kind of have this like innate desire within us to want to know what's going to happen next, right? I mean, we, we do things, we search it out, we go to all kinds of places, we ask people, we search back to find out what's going to happen forward. We watch these horrifyingly terrible Nostradamus shows. Anybody ever see those shows on the History Channel? I, those are just silly to me. The, the Bible Code. When we watch all these shows, we're thinking, what's going to happen next? I was thinking this week because um, we just finished our Sermon on the Mount series, and we're going into a Christmas series that we're, uh, we're calling Prepare the Way. We're starting that next week. And so I thought, if I just had to give one sermon, what would I give? And what I thought initially popped into my head was knowing God's will for your life. How can you know God's will for your life and trust it? How can you know God's will for your life and say, yeah, that's, that's it for me? Now, if we were to start like a, a class, a seminar or whatever, and say, knowing God's will for your life, my, I, I, I think that that would fill up pretty fast. I think that most people would, would join that class because they'd want to know what God's will is for my life. And it's actually this plaguing question that hits at us. What am I going to do when I grow up? I mean, you might be like 45 and saying, well, when I grow up, this is what I'm going to do, you know? And we ask this question, what is God's will for my life? Because we cannot stand not knowing the future. Knowing the future is a little bit escapist. Um, actually, as I was preparing for the sermon, I actually Googled, is time travel possible? Um, only because I thought, I wonder if people are actually talking about this. You'd be amazed at how many people are talking about time travel. Um, anyways, the cliff notes. Einstein says it is, but who knows? Theory of relativity, traveling faster than light. But, but here's my point on this. We all want to hear a word from God. We all are desperate to know what comes next and what do I do about it. We're all desperate to say, God, what is it that I'm going to do with my life? Um, or even you might be in a vocation that you, you just can't stand. You might be um, in a troubling uh, a relationship that's difficult for you. You might be at a, at a school that you don't like. You might be somewhere in life that is just difficult right now. Knowing that you've got to deal with some family this Thursday might be a g- cause for some great deal of stress and anxiety for some of you. So what is God's will for my life? What do I do in these circumstances? Um, there's this guy named Saul, and, and he actually had these same plaguing questions. And, and we're going to dig into 1 Samuel 28 for a second here, and then we're going to go out throughout the rest of the Bible. But um, here's the deal with, with Saul and, and the way that he lived. One, the way this was all set up was that there was a king, and the king led the people. And then there was a prophet, and the prophet actually heard from God and told the king what God said. And so th- this way, there was sort of this separation of power, the king and the prophet. And they, they would um, consult each other, and they would the prophet always outweighed the king because he was hearing from God. And whenever the king wanted to know what move to make in battle, he would go visit the prophet. And so the king and the prophet were always in the mix together. And if you do a study of Saul's life, you would see that at one point he tried to override that power, and that was a really big sin in his life that he tried to do. He tried to override the power of the prophet. But one of the things that happened is that Samuel died. Samuel was the prophet in Saul's time. He was the guy that heard the word of the Lord. So if you're uh, with me this morning on the screens, 1 Samuel 28, I just want to read a little bit of this, what he did. Now Samuel was dead, and all Israel had mourned for him 
and buried him in his own town of Ramah. Saul had expelled all the mediums and spiritualists from the land. And uh, in another translation, Saul had expelled the witches. They called them witches because they, you know, conjured up spirits and all that. The Philistines assembled and came and set up at Shunem, while Saul gathered all the Israelite and uh, all the Israel, all of Israel. Excuse me. Apparently, I have a problem stringing words into a sentence this morning. While Saul gathered all of Israel and set up camp at Geboa, while Saul and the Philistine army, when Saul saw the Philistine army, he was afraid. Terror filled his heart. He inquired of the Lord, but the Lord did not answer him by dreams or Urim or prophets. Saul then said to his attendants, find me a woman who's a medium, so I may go inquire of her. There is one in Endor, they said. So Saul disguised himself, putting on the clothes, um, putting on other clothes, and at night he and two men went to the woman. Consult a spirit for me, he said, and bring up for me the one that I name. But the woman said to him, surely you know that Saul has done. He has cut off all mediums and spiritualists from the land. Why have you set a trap for my life to bring about my death? Saul swore to her by the Lord, As surely as the Lord lives, you will not be punished for this. Then the woman asked, Whom shall I bring up for you? Bring up Samuel, he said. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out at the top of her voice and said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. lost my place. Oh, there he said. Then the king said to her, don't be afraid of what you see. The woman said, I see a ghostly figure coming up from the earth. What does he look like? He asked. An old man wearing a robe that is coming up, she said. Then Saul knew it was Samuel and bowed and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? I am in great distress, Saul said. The Philistines are fighting against me and God has departed from me. He no longer answers me either by prophets or by dreams. So I have called on you to tell me what to do. Samuel said, Why do you consult me now that the Lord has departed from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done what he has predicted through me. The Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hands and given it to one of your neighbors, to David, because you did not obey the Lord or carry out his fierce wrath against the Amiculites. The Lord has done this to you today. The Lord will deliver both Israel and you into the hands of the Philistines. And tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. The Lord will also give the army of Israel into the hands of the Philistines. Immediately Saul fell full length on the ground, filled with fear because Samuel's words, his strength was gone, for he had eaten nothing all So Saul consults this witch at Endor. And you know the interesting thing is, where the Philistine army is camped, and then where the Israelite army is camped, um, Mount Geboa and uh, Shechem, right behind Shechem is this little town called Endor. And so why is that important? Because Saul actually had to conceal himself to go behind enemy lines to talk to this witch because he really needed to know what was going on. Now, Saul refused to listen to God when Samuel was alive. Samuel would tell him things. This is the word of the Lord, he would say. And Saul would be like, yeah, right, I'm not doing that. You know, sometimes God speaks to us and, and God pushes us and he uses people and we go, yeah, yeah, yeah I'm not going to do that. That's exactly what Saul was doing. 
his whole life. And so Samuel just calls him on it. He says, hey, now that I'm dead and now that the Lord has departed from you and you've completely disobeyed God, now you want to hear from him? In, in other words, you haven't organized your life to hear from God. You've organized your life around yourself and now you expect to hear from God when you're in times of trouble. It's a good thing none of us do this, right? <laughs> that we've like grown, grown further as the Christian um, people to progress beyond you know, not listening to God now, and then when we really need him, saying, God, where are you? You know? Remember when I taught on Psalm 1, there's actually two paths to go. There's actually two ways to learn from in this life. There's the way of leaning on the Lord, leaning on the counsel of God, or taking the advice of the wicked. Psalm 1 clearly lays that out. And one of the things that Psalm 1 does is, is it sort of lays a foundation for all the rest of the Psalms. So if you're reading through all the rest of the Psalms, they talk about the counsel of the Lord versus the path of the wicked. And so it's sort of this parallel path through all the Psalms. And the question is, what, who are we learning from? Are we accepting Jesus as our teacher? Is God our teacher? Do we learn from him both day and night? Or are we on the path of the counsel of the wicked? Remember which we talked about a few months ago is simply the way that most people talk. That you should be concerned about things like your appearance. That aging is something to worry about. That life really is burdensome and we really need to worry about it. I mean, the, the anxiety is something that you ought to really just have and hold on to rather than giving that up to the Lord. And I know that's difficult sometimes. But really, there's these two paths to go down. And this is sort of what uh, Samuel was relaying to Saul. He's saying, hey, remember that you didn't listen to me. I was the word of God here, and you simply didn't listen to me when I was here. Well, we all have our witch of Endor. We all have the place that we go to for answers. Some of you probably have reservations at Chinese food just so you can get the cookie afterwards and figure <laughs> and tell dirty jokes. Everybody I've been with that has the cookie tells a dirty joke. I'm not saying it's right. I don't, I don't do it. I'm just saying everybody does that. But my point is we all have the place that we go to for some sort of knowledge when we don't know what's going on. Oh, let me just go ask this person or let me see what the horoscope says or let me get that fortune cookie or let me just sort of see what somebody else says in my life. Let's go talk to this advisor. Let's go talk to that advisor. And what Samuel is saying to Saul is that you didn't consult me when you were on earth, buddy, when I was on earth, and tomorrow you'll join me. In other words, tomorrow you'll be dead. And so we all want to know what's God's plan for my life. What does God want to do through me? What's going to happen to, to my life? And I want to submit to you that knowing the will of God is actually a lot easier than you could ever imagine. Knowing the will of God is something that you could absolutely know for your life, without question. Now, what does that mean? Uh, the job that I'm going to have? Who knows about that? I don't, I don't know about that. I, I think God says, go for it. But knowing God's will for your life, I think it's pretty certain, because that's like the biggest question that people have, and yet it's pretty clearly spelled out. The Apostle Paul spells it out. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. If you're there, join, join me there. Um, I just want to read it out of the, the NIV version, the old NIV, because I like it better than the new NIV, which we have up there on the screen. It says, Be joyful always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, 
for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Be joyful always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. I mean, what if it was that simple? What if God's will was literally that simple? That we become the kind of person that is joyful always, that gives thanks in all circumstances, that prays continually, and, and then, then we know we're living in God's will because we can hear from God and do what he says to do. So let's break this down. Be joyful always. And the new way to say that, sort of new, the new translation is rejoice always. So let's break this down. What is joy? Joy is a sense of persistent well-being. Joy is persistent well-being because joy is consistent even in terrible circumstances. Joy is consistent in terrible circumstances. One of the best ways to see this through Paul's writing in 2 Corinthians, he's writing to the church, and he says this, 2 Corinthians 7, verse 2 through 7, make room for us in your hearts. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have exploited no one. I do not say this to condemn you. I have said this before, that you have such a place in your heart that we will live or die with you. I have spoken to you with great frankness. I take great pride in you. I am greatly encouraged. In all of our troubles, my joy knows no bounds. In all of our troubles, my joy knows no bounds. For when we came to Macedonia, we had no rest. But we were harassed at every turn, conflicts on the outside, fears within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, um, but also by the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was even greater than ever. So Paul is this guy who's had a terrible amount of troubles. In other parts, he says, I've been shipwrecked, I've been beaten, I've been flogged, I've been bitten, put into prison twice. And he just lays out this list of things. And then he says, but I say to you, rejoice. Because he simply has this point of view that when you're with God, joy is pervasive. Joy cuts through all the terrible circumstances. Some of the most joyful moments that I've ever had have been with people who have, who have literally been with God on this earth and then were dying. Um, I've had the pleasure of, of sitting down at a number of bedsides with people as they've, as they've been passing away and talking with them. And that's the most joyous I've ever seen some of them. The most joyous because it's consistent in terrible circumstances. When you're with God presently, on earth now, when you speak to him as if he's right next to you, when you talk to God, when you surrender your life to him and put your confidence in him, then you have the confidence that God is right there with you. Joy cuts through all terrible circumstances. And Paul even says, even though Paul was faced with trouble, he says, my joy, it, it, there's no bounds to it. There's no bounds. Joy is consistent with terrible circumstances. Was Paul totally happy about being shipwrecked all these times or being hurt all these times? Probably not. He, was he comfortable? Probably not. Did he hurt? Absolutely. But so what is joy? Joy is a realization of what's really going on in God's world. Joy is the realization of what's really going on in God's world. Now think that through. With God in charge, the joy is the realization of God being in charge of this world. Joy is one of the hardest things to associate with God because there's so much trouble in this world. There's so much happening for God to worry about. 
But think about it. If we didn't have a joyful God, if God was not joyful, then you better head for cover, right? Then you better just like get out of here because something's going to come down. You'd be a wrathful and vengeful God. But think about creation. Creation itself was an act of joy. God took delight in creating this world and creating you and me. I mean, look at, look at Genesis chapter 1. As you look through it, what did God do after he saw each of the creation? He delighted in it. He took joy in what he had done. Creation is an act of joy. And for us sometimes, that's probably why um, doing creative things is actually some of our most joyous moments. Some of you like work with your hands. And you probably go back and look at it every now and then. Some of you might write. I know that when I write, and I, I, it just, there's like a happy place in my heart. Then I'm like, when I write something, I look back at it and go, hey, that, that was actually okay. You know, and, and it, it, there's this active joy in, in, in sharing in this creative work that God is doing. There's an active joy in doing things creative. So God delights in that. So God is really a God of joy. And our source of joy. Looking at your child and thinking, I had a part in creating that child. Um, maybe painting something spectacular, working on an old car, creating and solving a problem, working with wood, writing something significant. At those moments, it's really important to note that God's joy in your life can just cut through anything. Any bad moment, any hard time. God's joy can just cut through it all. And is it sad? Absolutely. When somebody passes away, do you cry? I, I do. That's, uh, Jesus did. I mean, it, it is rough. But when you know somebody like this, you just want to be at their bedside because they've just got so much love and joy because it's not their love and joy, but they're borrowing it from the Father and they live in constant communion with God. So when Paul said, rejoice always or be joyful always, I think that's really what he meant. Was that not by your own joy, your own joy, your own happiness, you can never do that. But you, that, that is something that needs to be tapped into, into the Father. And that comes from a constant relationship with your Father. Joy is pervasive. Joy is pervasive. It is consistent with terrible things, terrible circumstances. And then he says, pray continually. So be joyful always, pray continually. This is one of the hardest things to do. My wife has this great joke. Uh, we're, we're sitting at dinner, and one time we just started eating, and somebody was like, oh, shouldn't you get the pastor's family? Shouldn't they pray? And my wife's like, oh, I don't limit myself to three meals a day. I just, I pray continually. You know, made them just, it's a great line, by the way. Does it mean you need to be, like, in prayer position, you know, like, hands folded or you know, it's funny when you, you sit down in, in seats in church, there's like all these different prayer positions that people have, and somebody even made a chart on it. I think it's hilarious. But, but does it mean you need to be like in constant prayer position? No. Simply that in your mind, you simply talk to God throughout the day. Simply let him know what's on your mind. And I could preach an entire series on what I'm about to say, but when you interact with other people, maybe it's just as simple as saying, God, how can I bless this person today? God, how can I bless this person? So you're in a conversation with somebody, and just that, that thought just fires off in your head. God, how can I bless this person? You'd be amazed at what comes to mind. 
the early church used to do this, to pray continually. They did a number of things because they took this command pretty seriously to pray continually. So they, would, they had these two prayers that were really famous. One is the Jesus prayer. The Jesus prayer is, is where the, the man um, sees himself, uh, he's, he's worshiping God at the temple, and one of the Pharisees says, says about this guy, Oh Lord, thank you that I'm not like that sinner. And the man, understanding where he was in life, simply said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's the Jesus prayer. That's the, that's the earliest prayer that the church repeated over and over and over again and just made a normal part of their day to simply say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And then came along some of the earliest monks, the guys who lived out in the desert, the, the monks of Nicholas and, and um, some of these guys with crazy names um, that, that are really hard to pronounce, or else I try and pronounce them for you. But one of the things that they did was they said, how do we pray ceaselessly? How do we pray continually? And one of the things they realized was that they breathe pretty regularly. You know, every day, many times a day, in and out. And so one of the things they just simply started to pray was, Father, I belong to you. So they'd inhale and they'd say, Father, or Abba. And they'd exhale and say, I belong to you. And so for them, prayer just became as normal as breathing. And when Paul says, pray continually, I think that's what he means. He doesn't mean necessarily run up here to the altar, raise your hands, or, or you know, get in prayer position or anything like that. I think Paul simply is trying to say, pray continually. Talk to God regularly throughout your day, on your mind. You know, just, just as, as normal as you would somebody else. But there's a couple of reasons why we pray. And, and if you remember this summer, we did a whole series on prayer And I don't want to revisit the whole thing now, but one of the big things that we talked about is when you pray, um, Father in the heavens, what what you're really doing is Jesus will come up to you. What really is happening through prayer is that Jesus comes up to you. When you talk to God, God comes right up to you. John uh, chapter 15, uh, I think it's in verse 23, it says, For those who love him, God comes and builds his home in him. And this whole idea of the heavens is that God is here among us right now. And so when you pray, God's like, hey, I'm here. I'm right here for you. So a couple things. One is because Jesus will come up to you. But two is so that your life will be wrapped up in God's life. Think about this. When you have a conversation with your spouse, when you have a conversation with a friend, and you're just like, oh. You know, you could write an entire paragraph on what that means, huh? You know what I mean? And your spouse, like, I, I got a text from my wife the other day, and it was like I forgot to do something. It, wasn't, it was like, hey, did you do this yet? Because it, like, mailed something. And I just went, oh. And if she was sitting right there, she could have just wrote an entire paragraph on what that meant. She knew exactly what I was feeling. When you spend time with somebody, you get to know them. So that things like body gestures and groans and eye rolls really mean something, don't they? I tell you, when my wife lets out a deep sigh, I could instantly translate that into like a full story. God wants relationship with us, and it's difficult to have that if you don't talk. And more so, here's something that Paul said, it's something even deeper, and I think brilliant. And um, it says Romans 8, 
26 through 27, in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the minds, knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. So I just have this great picture of like needing something or, or, or not even knowing what to pray. A tragedy happens and you're like, ah, oh, I, I don't know what to say. And you just go, oh, God. I, and he's like, yeah, I got it. I know. I got it. I know. You don't have to say anything because we're with each other so often that I know exactly how it is that you feel. I know exactly how that is. When you're in constant relationship with somebody, then this connection that you have with Jesus, I mean, it's simply that when you get that phone call, when you get that text message, when you get that look, you just go, ah, ah, and God's like, yeah, I got it. I know. I got that. It's like Google Translate, you know, you just wordless groan, and this whole paragraph comes out. So be joyous always. Always be in presence and conversation with Jesus. Because one of the things we learned this summer is prayer means presence. When you're praying, you're present with God. God's always present with us, but it makes you present with God. So your mind is open, your understanding is there, that you were there with God. So be joyful always, pray continually, and then the next thing is give thanks in all circumstances. Sometimes there's nothing left to give but to give gratitude. Being thankful is really a basic tenet of human survival. Saying that you are thankful reminds you that you actually need community to survive. We need each other to survive, right? And saying you're thankful is saying like, hey, you remember how humanity needs each other to survive? (laughs) That's sort of what you're saying. But gratitude trains us for life in God's kingdom. Gratitude actually trains our hearts as people that remember their salvation. Grateful people are trained to be people that worship. So people that are joyful always because of their constant presence with God. People that pray continually because they need God in everything. And people that are thankful always are people that are training themselves to worship in everyday life. Whether they're getting their car washed, whether they're at the dentist, whether they're in school, whether they just got this load of horrible information, or whether they just got the greatest news on earth. God trains us for worship in these three things. And he says, that's, your, that's my will for you. That's it. Sorry, it's nothing magical, nothing mystical, nothing like, oh, let's write it all on the wall. Or It's simply that. To be grateful people. We all have this burning question, what's God's will for my life? And I simply think it's that you become the kind of person Whose, whose character is formed so much so that you worship God all day long. So whether you're sleeping, whether you're awake, whatever that is, that in your interaction with people, that you're simply, your gratitude, your joy, and your prayerfulness comes across this all day long. God gave you life, and he wants you to delight in him. And he'll simply give you the desires of your heart. For so many of us, we want the magic bullet or the silver bullet. We want the answer. We want, um, we want to know what's coming up next. But I think the biblical narrative is pretty clear. Psalm 37.4 says, Take delight in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. 
Take delight in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. Are the desires of your heart always good for you or somebody else? No, they're not. And we talked about this in our prayer series, that why does God sometimes not answer prayer? Because what you're asking for is probably dangerous and you couldn't safely handle it if God gave it to you. We sometimes think about that. Colossians 3, verses uh, 23 to 24 says, whatever you do, Paul isn't saying like, hey, um, go do this, this, and this. He says, whatever you do, he realizes that we're all made differently, that we all have these different places in life, that we all want to do different things. And so he says, whatever you do, work at it with your, all your heart as to working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. So he simply says, treat ordinary things in life as if you're serving Jesus in every way. Treat ordinary things in your life as if you're serving Jesus. So what's God's will for you? It's that. It's simply that. Be joyful always. Pray continually and give thanks in all circumstances. And as you do this, you become that kind of person. Now, I make my kids say thank you. Not be, they don't want to sometimes and they don't mean it uh, other times, and, but I make them say thank you. And the reason why I make them say thank you is because at first they don't get it. At first they don't even realize why they're doing it. But then, as they do it more and more and more, they realize their need. They realize their need for somebody else. They realize that somebody provided for them, and they become grateful persons. They're not born that way. Kids are pretty selfish. I mean, you should have seen them right out of the womb there. They're like grabbing, oh, feed me. Oh, I want to sleep. Change my diaper. Really annoying. This should be very freeing for you, that God's will isn't that you have to go do something massive and great, although that'd be awesome. And maybe God will lead you to that. God's will isn't necessarily that you, that you, that you need to do something great with your career, or go to this school or that school, or, or, or that it's a huge deal whether or not you wear this or wear that, or, or you know, anything like that. But God's will simply for you is that your character is formed into his likeness. And that through that, you become the type of person that's joyful always. And that you would know the type of joy that cuts through all circumstances, even through death, that you would know joy. That you're prayerful always. In other words, that you're with God always. And that you give thanks in all circumstances. This is God's will. I mean, this is the only thing that the Apostle Paul said, this is God's will for you. Through all the Bible. And every time you see like people saying, what's God's will for me? It's really to go about as normal and, and to live with God. I mean, that's simply it. There's nothing magical and mystical about it. So what I'd say to you is go along seemingly as normal, but with God. We're going to try one thing real quick just because it's Thanksgiving week. I'm just going to give you guys like, 30 seconds to think about something that you're grateful for and to tell either a complete stranger or your neighbor next to you. So 30 seconds, go. So go ahead.
All right. Thank you. I challenge you. I mean, I know that it just sort of seems like a, a, a dumb exercise at Thanksgiving. Oh, we can't eat until somebody says everything that they're thankful for. You know, it just sort of, I, I remember growing up as a kid thinking like, oh, come on. Can we just get to the mashed potatoes already? Isn't, that, isn't this why we're all here anyways? The turkey? But I challenge you to create gratefulness in your family, to create an attitude of gratefulness by challenging people to say what they're thankful for. Not only that, but to become the kind of people that are joyful always and pray continually. And for you, maybe that just happens in a, in a mind shift, a mindset shift, that God's will for me is that I become a type of person for him that looks like him. Let's pray. Fathers, we think through Thanksgiving coming up, Lord, I realize that the stuff that I've even said today in this sermon are difficult. It's not easy to be joyful around people that are hurting or sad or broken. It's not easy to be joyful around some family members that we may have had some problems with in the past. But God, we also recognize this is the only thing that in all the scripture that really says, this is my will for you. And so God, help us to live in that. Help us to be those people that are joyful always. That sense of joy comes directly from you because you delight in us. Father, help us to become the kind of people that pray continually, just in every breath, as a normal part of living. And God, help us to be people that give gratitude freely. And God, lead us not into the temptation of seeking out so many other means that are possible for us to to figure out what your will is. But God, simply to go straight to you. Lord, forgive us of going to the witch of Endor so many times, whatever that looks like for our lives. And God, this week, would you simply lead us in your presence so that we might look more and more like you in our everyday life. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.